Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Please have a seat, and we are going to uh, finish up our sermon series this week on Luke chapter 4, where we have been the last three weeks. This is our fourth week in, uh, as we have been studying the temptation of Christ. So Jesus has been called into the wilderness, into the, into the desert, and he's been there 40 days being tempted by Satan. And the temptation process really has been pretty comprehensive. You remember we have said that the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus has been tempted in every way, just like we are, but did not sin. So Satan has coming at every aspect of who Jesus is in the same way that he does us and our lives as well. You can see it this way. In Luke chapter 10, uh, Luke gives a summary of the entire Bible and what the, the greatest commandments of the Bible are. And it says this, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And so what we see here is Satan attacking each of these areas. We see Satan uh, the last week come after his heart by attempting him with authority. The week before that, we see Satan try to manipulate Jesus and tempt him with the hungers of his flesh because his strength is low. And this week, we're going to see Satan come after Jesus's mind by using reason to tempt him to doubt. So the only thing that's left from Luke chapter 10 is, is the soul. And isn't that what is at stake here for all of us? So, so Satan here, this last and final temptation that we'll work through today, this is, he's attacked from every angle, trying to find the weakness of Jesus. And I, I hope that we see, as in working through this together these last few weeks, that Satan is relentless with us as well, because he wants everyone to turn their faith and their thoughts and their lives and their actions and their hearts away from God and the glory of God and the holiness of God and the flourishing of God and into a place of brokenness. So we need to be aware of what Satan is up to and how he works in our lives and also be encouraged that as Jesus was tempted in every way and did not sin, that he's also with us in our times of temptation as well. So let's, uh, let's look into here. We're going to start in verse 9 and see the final temptation of, of Christ. Now, last bit of context. Remember that the other two times that Satan has tempted Jesus, the, the way that Jesus has resisted, the way he sort of countered Satan is by quoting Scripture to him. So Satan said, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus said, Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone. We didn't actually give the, the numbers weren't there yet, but, but, but Satan knew what he was talking about anyway. And so Satan said, then I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you'll just worship me. And Jesus said, Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall worship the Lord your God and you shall serve him only. So Jesus has been using the scripture as his lens to be able to see through the temptation of Satan and to actually give a better and more righteous way that he is pledging his allegiance to, the way of God. And so here's what happens. Satan's a sly one. 
Look what happens here in verse 9. So Satan took Jesus to Jerusalem, the holy city, right? The city of God, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, we've already talked about how Satan attacks our identity. If you weren't here those weeks, you need to go back and listen to those sermons online. If you are the son of God, then throw yourself down from here. Jump. Why? Verse 10, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Where is it written? Psalm 91. Satan, who, Jesus has been using the scripture then to defend against the, the, the attacks of Satan, and so Satan is going to twist this and go, yeah, yeah, I know those words too. I can read as well. And so he twists that around and he says, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's use the words of the Bible then. Uh, and here's what the Bible says. So why don't you jump off the top of the temple? Because clearly it says here, since you are such a stickler for this whole word of God thing, clearly it says here, if you throw yourself down, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And what a great witness this would be too, wouldn't it? There's, you're in the holy city. There's people all around on the ground walking around. And if they saw Jesus leap from the top and then be caught by angels and floated away and set down gracefully onto the ground, it could be glorious for God. This is wonderful. This is, this is fantastic, Jesus. Just jump and you'll prove the word of God to be true. So Satan is setting a snare here. He's setting a trap because his intent is to tempt Jesus to doubt the viability of God's word. Is it, is it really true enough to trust your life to? That's a, that's a, big, that's a big leap, literally, right? I mean, that's a, big, that's a big jump off the top of, of the, the temple. You keep saying that you do the things that Scripture tells you, so here you go. Can you really trust it? Can you really trust your very life to the word of God. So that's on the surface, but there's something else very sinister happening here as well. One, just is the word of God trustworthy? But then two, he's tempting Jesus to set up a test to make God prove that his word is true by testing him. We're going to leave out cookies on Christmas Eve and see if they're gone the next day to prove if Santa is real. We're going to jump off the, the, the temple to see if God's word is real or not. Jesus, you've read the words, and so now God should act accordingly. Test it and see. So Satan is trying to, to trap him in a trap of, of logic. If he doesn't jump, Jesus is showing doubt that the word of God is trustworthy. If he does jump, then he's forcing God to act in a certain way. And if he doesn't, then his words must not be true. It's kind of manipulating God. It's like when your kids say your own words back to you and you say, don't use my own words against me, right? You've, you've felt that, right? Like that's not what I said. You just completely took that out of context. That is not what I said. Right? So it's, it's a manipulation of forcing God to act in a certain way. It's all about authority 
in, in control. So let's look at each one of these temptations towards doubt because I want to show you that Satan works the same way with us. He might not take you to the top of a temple and tell you to jump off, but he works the same way with us. One, Satan would have us doubt that the word of God is trustworthy. Over and over again, over the course of the last few weeks, and hopefully every Sunday in some way, shape, or form here at Redeemer, you will hear that the Word of God, the revealed Word of God, is the foundation of everything that we are as Christians. That, it is, that, that the, the Word of God is not a textbook that we, that we just study about God. It is, it, is not a, uh, it is not a description of God that has been written by men that we can just read the wise words in, but that we believe that the Word of God is the revealed truth of God. In other words, that if, if anyone ever says, well, how can we really know God? I mean, how can anybody know God? How can you know what He's like? Aren't we all just kind of speculating? Well, that would be true unless God wants to be known and then intentionally reveals himself to us. And that's what we see the Word of God is. The the God who would be unknowable by our own intellect and by our own figuring him out has taken a step towards us, has revealed himself to us in his Word, in his Word written that we have in the Scripture and in the Word made flesh in Jesus. So the Word of God is the foundation of everything that Christians believe. And if we lose that, if we lose the authority of that, if we lose the viability of that, the trustworthiness of that, then we truly have nothing. We have sentiment. We might have some old tradition. But we don't have anything better than what the world has to offer. But we do have the revealed Word of God. God who has spoken, who has caused his words to be recorded, who has guarded the process of getting those words to our ears today. And so if that is true, then the word of God is something to be treasured, something to be studied, something to be, something to be held up, something to, uh, to, to, that should be a major focus of the pursuit of our lives. And so Satan would like very much for us to doubt the trustworthiness of the scripture. So we ask questions like, is the word of God trustworthy? How do we follow it appropriately? And who can really know? And and honestly, I'm kind of afraid of the Bible because it seems so important, but I don't know how to read it well, and I could read it wrong, and then I could cause damage. And I heard somewhere that it's actually just full of contradictions. And wasn't it written by men thousands of years ago? So, the, so are the words that we have today even the original words? And the Discovery Channel has all these very convincing shows about ancient aliens with really, really professional-looking hosts um, that, uh, that with titles and their doctors and stuff. Um, and and they're, they're saying something completely different. And so how can we really know? just that little nudge of doubt. So how do, how do we answer these questions? Well, I don't have time today to give a full defense of the, of the providence and, and reliability of the Scripture. I, I could give you a lot of stats. I mean, I could work through why the historicity of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible. I could tell you how there are 
um, around 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts still in existence dating back to the early 2nd century all the way through the 16th century. And in comparison, many other widely accepted historical documents only have less than 20 that, that the Bible is actually the most historically reliable and attested book and document that we have. Uh, I can tell you that even, uh, that even outside of the manuscripts themselves, that the entire New Testament uh, is, is contained in ancient teachings from the church of, of sermons that we have, that the earliest teachers of the church taught, and nearly the entire New Testament is, uh, is, is repeated in those teachings. We could talk about those kind of things. We could talk about variations of the texts, and uh, are, there, are there differences in translations over the years? And I could talk to you about how less there's, there are are very few variations in translations, and in less than 1% of those variations make any difference to interpretation. Most are just misspellings and stuff, like I copied it, and so I misspell things all the time. We could talk about those things, but none of that's actually going to convince you to trust God. You don't trust somebody based on their credit report, right? I mean, it's part of it. Like if we hire somebody here at Redeemer, we check their credit report and we have their driving history and their criminal record. And I mean, we do a thorough background check, but we also interview them and spend time with them and ask them good questions and check their references of people that have been around them as well. And trust really comes through time. Trust really comes with being with somebody, not just the data about somebody. And so how can you determine whether God and his word are trustworthy? There's no shortcut to just being with him, spending time with him, pursuing him, praying to him, studying him, longing for him, singing to him. You can read books about him. You can read books about the scripture. I can preach to you as well. As, uh, and, and it's all fine and good and right. But there is no shortcut to gaining trust in God by simply being with him. And, and you do that in his word. Re- actually read, read it. And instead of doubting it from afar, how about read it? And, you know, isn't it funny how, how so many other things draw our attention away from the Word of God, that, that you hear me talk about it or others talk about it up here, about how we need to be a people of the Word. We need, it, it is the revealed Word of, the, of the, the unknowable God who has made Himself known, that the, all of the truths of the universe are laid out for us, well, not all of them, but the ones that have been revealed are laid out for us in the Scripture, that God Himself has spoken. And as an American, you probably have three to five Bibles somewhere in your house. If you can find them under the dust, right? Like you hear me talk about these things and, and why is it that it's so much easier to look at Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is you do, or watch SportsCenter or read Family Handyman Magazine, or whatever. Why is it so much easier to be drawn to those things than the very Word of God itself? Temptation. Don't you see? Don't you see? There's, there's, actually, there's actually 
forces at work in you to try to keep you from spending time in the revealed word of God of getting to know him. And we don't even see those things as temptation anymore because they're so normal to us. And it's not until we shine a light on the workings of Satan and the workings of our sin nature that we realize, yes, there are other draws that are drawing me away from God himself. And so part of trusting is just being in it, just learning. Another gift that God has given us for for us to learn how to have faith and how to trust is the sacraments. That that this is what the Reformers called the, the visible word, that we get to not only read it and not only hear it proclaimed to us and say it in the liturgy as well, but that we get to see the visible word that, that, that the sacraments are when, if you went through the Anglican Way class with us and you're headed towards confirmation or you've been confirmed. We looked at this together. That when we talk about the sacraments, we talk about them as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, that they're a means by which we receive grace and they are an assurance that we have indeed received that grace. So what does all that mean? That means that it's something you can touch, see, taste, and feel that gives us an assurance of of another reality that is equally true that you can't touch, see, taste, and feel. That, That Jesus has, his body has been broken for you. His blood has been poured out for you to save you to heal you. And I can say that, and you can hear that, and you can picture that in your mind, and then you can touch it, see it, taste it, and feel it when we come up for the sacrament. It's something, it's a gift that God has given us because he knows that we are heart and soul and body and mind. And so there's a gift for us in being able to to participate in the word of God, in the sacraments that have been given to the church. And one of the most, one of the most beautiful aspects of this definition for me about what is a sacrament, the visible word, is that it says that the sacraments are an assurance that you have indeed received that grace. What does that mean? That means when our intellect fails us and our emotions let us down and we're and we're not sure if God is there. And, and then we're thinking, well, I do think God is there, but, but, but I'm not sure. If, and what about me? Does he care about me? And, and have I truly given, uh, given my heart to him? And, and do I have enough? Am I truly saved? And we go through these crises of faith and doubt. Instead of having to spin off, off of the moorings of Scripture and off of the church, we get to sometimes just go, has this, has this happened? Has grace been given to me? Yes. I know that because I received the sacraments. Not because the sacraments are magical. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that sometimes all we have, our intellect, our emotion, our spiritual strength, like we don't have anything to drum up anymore, nothing to bring, nothing to give. And we just remember, I'm a part of the church. And I held out my hands to receive. And grace was bestowed and I ate. And that's all I've got. And sometimes that's all that we have to lean on because we don't have the strength of spirit and the strength of mind and the strength of heart to keep ourselves on the right path. But sometimes all we have is, I just have to trust. And I remember chewing that bread. That's what I've got. I remember chewing the bread. That's all I can bring today. 
and that's okay. When we talk about doubts, Jesus, Jesus talked about faith. He talked about if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, that you can move mountains. It's not about the amount of faith that we have. It's not about whether we're faithful enough. It's, it's if we come limping to God, crawling to God, or sometimes we just lay there and kind of call out to God. Do we, do we trust him? It's not about our own spiritual fortitude. It's about do we trust God? And there's a certain amount that with the scripture and with the things that we talk about, it does require faith. It requires faith. And what is faith? Trust. Faith is trust. And so we are not going to be able to answer all of the questions about, uh, about God and why things happen in the world. We can't answer all of those questions. Sometimes it comes down to faith. And that doesn't mean that we don't think as Christians. We should actually think better than folks who don't have the revealed word of God as their starting place. Great scientists and authors and poets have, people who are much smarter than any of us in here, have been deeply faithful Christians. We don't have to turn off our brains. You're not going to outthink God. It's okay. Plunge the depths of the riches of Christ. You're not going to exhaust them. So you don't have to turn off your brain. You get to think well, but we have to just know the limits of our own intellect and our own thinking in our own minds. That you will never understand everything. And if you can't understand it, that doesn't mean it's not true. It means God is smarter than you. Do you, do you want a God that you can completely understand? Would he then be God at all? I don't even understand my wife. I don't understand my cat. Like, I have cats. I'm like, what are you doing? I don't even understand why. Like, why, why should I have the mental capacity to be able to understand everything in the universe? Like, if my car breaks down, I take it to a mechanic because I can't fix it. But somehow, when it comes to universal truths, I'm like, I should be able to get that. I should, <laughs> if, if you can't convince me, then it's probably not true. But if my toilet breaks, then I'm going to call a plumber. Like, it doesn't make any sense how we try to put ourselves in the place of God. And we've been trying to do that since Genesis chapter 3. So is the word of God trustworthy? You can read the statistics about the reliability of the document or whatever. That's fine. Uh, and, and I'd love to work through that with you. You can go through apologetics classes. That's great. All those things are good to study. But ultimately, it's going to come down to, are you spending time in it? Are you spending time with God? Are you learning? Are you growing? And are you seeing if it's actually what it says that it is? All right, so here's the second, second thing that Satan did, is that he, that he set up a test. He had Jesus set up a test, or wanted Jesus to set up a test, uh, that, that God must pass to prove his, his trustworthiness. Jump off, because the scripture says, if you jump off, then the angels are going to catch you. And and so, so do it. Here we go. Here's the test. Jump off. And we do this same thing to God. We do, this, we do this all the time. If God was real, he would have done, you fill in the blank. If he was true, he would have not allowed this to happen. I prayed for, for 
this and it didn't happen. Therefore, God is not real. There's part of the Bible I cannot reconcile with my own understanding of the world. And so therefore, God does not exist. We set up this, these kind of tests all the time. And perhaps you in here or someone that you know close to you is struggling deeply with God because of one of these kind of tests. And these are deep things. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's the betrayal of a friend. Deep, deep things that we say, if God was real, this wouldn't have happened. If God was faithful, then he wouldn't have allowed this to happen to me. And we set up these tests, but ultimately what we're doing is that we're telling God there's only one way for things to be run properly, and that's my way. And if I don't understand it, then you must not be real. And again, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. We're trying to say, I know how things would go best if you just did it the way that I want it to be. And so we doubt. And so we reject our faith. But, but friends, this is not how, how it works. God, God has promised to provide for us. God has promised to care for us. God has promised to be with us in our trials. But he has never promised that we will never suffer or that we will never go through tribulation in this world. He's never promised that. The same Jesus who was tempted just like we are has suffered just like we have, right? Jesus was not removed from suffering. At the end of this passage, we're going to see that, that Satan tempts him, and Jesus is going to win this one too. We'll see that in just a minute. But then, but then it says that Satan left him for a more opportune time. I believe that more opportune time was in the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus was about to be arrested and, and to be put on the cross to carry the sins of the entire world. And he's there and he's praying and he's in so much anguish because he knows what he's about to go through that he's literally sweating blood is what the scripture tells us. And he calls out to God and he says this, take this cup from me. In other words, ah, this is hard. Like yeah. This is going to be literally excruciating. The word excruciating means from the cross. That's what the word means, excruciating. This is going to be excruciating. This is going to be, this is going to be humiliating. This is going to be awful. Take this cup from me. But then what he says is, not my will be done, but yours. Can you not hear Satan on his shoulders? Don't do this. It's going to hurt. Don't do it. Don't, there's got to be another way. If God truly loved you, if you were truly his son, then he wouldn't do this to you. You shouldn't, you shouldn't, a cross? What kind of father would let his son go to the cross? Can you hear the words of Satan there at that more opportune time? And, and Jesus says, but your will be done, not mine. God has promised to provide for us, but he's not a cosmic vending machine, right? Like if you, if you pray the right B3, then your prayer request drops down to the bottom. And if it doesn't come out, you have to shake it, right? And, uh, and then if it still doesn't fall out, God must not be real. But that's the way that we talk about him sometimes. Like I haven't received what I prayed for when I pressed the buttons. It didn't fall out. And so therefore, you, 
you must not be real. Friends, that's not how this works at all. That's not what God has ever said that he would be. You see, when, when, when Satan quotes Psalm 91 here to Jesus, he leaves out about three quarters of it. He takes one verse out of context and goes, test him with this. But Psalm 91 says this, verse one says, he who dwells in the shelter of the most high will abide in the shadow of the almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then Satan quotes, starting from verse 9, uh, it says this, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall befall you, no plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The fullness of Psalm 91 says, trust the Lord, and he's going to lead you beside still waters and into green pastures. It's a psalm about trusting the Lord in all things. And Satan is trying to say, uh, here's one verse. It says, uh, you will not hit your foot on a stone. So therefore, that must mean you can jump. And if we believe those kind of things, then we jump into places we shouldn't jump. And then when we fall and we hit our foot on a stone, we go, God, where were you? But that's not what Psalm 91 was about at all. It was about pursuing God, following his way, knowing the revealed word of God, pursuing him in our life, knowing his grace and forgiveness, and that, that we will be protected from the things of this world that, into which Satan would want to lead us. Psalm 91 is about trust. It's not about testing. And yet, so oftentimes, we test God. Trusting is about trusting even when it hurts, even when we suffer, even when we lament and we weep, even when we're full of joy and it doesn't seem like we need him at the moment. To trust him, to pursue him, so to in all things say, not your will be done, but mine, because I believe that your will is best, even if there are difficult things in my life. We don't, we don't trust God based on our circumstances. We don't, we don't look at our circumstances to give us evidence for God. Rather, we establish God as Lord of all first, and then that is what guides us and leads us and helps us persevere in all our circumstances. So here's, so here's what Jesus says to him. Here's how Jesus answers Satan's testing and tempting. Jesus answered him, verse 12, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So even answer scripture with scripture, right? <laughs> he says, no, 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 let me give you a proper understanding and a proper reading of that, because you can't just take it and twist it into whatever you want to twist it into and just make it arbitrary uh, and, uh, and then apply it to strange things in your life, like jumping off of, of the temple. And we are the worst at this at Christians even today. Like we, put, we tend to like certain particular verses and put them on coffee mugs and, uh, and use those to inspire us in our daily life right? And oftentimes we've taken those verses completely out of context, and they don't mean anything about what we said that they can mean. One of my favorites is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That does not mean that you can dunk a basketball, (laughs) right? That, That has nothing to do with that at all. Nothing, 
right? That's not, you go back and read in Philippians where that is, and you're going to find a completely different context for what that means. Or we say things like, judge not lest ye be judged, right? For some reason, we have to speak that one like a pirate um, because, because it doesn't sound right if you go, don't, you know, don't judge, right? Lest ye be judged, right? And so then we're like, you can't tell anybody else that what they're doing is right or wrong. You can't, you don't, who are you to judge? That is not what that verse says. That's not what that verse says at all. And so we do this all of the time where we take these verses out of context, twist them, and then try to use them for our own means and try to make Scripture as if it belonged to us rather than Scripture belonging to God and us belonging to God. So Satan, uh, so Satan has said, let me twist this Scripture and cause you to test. And Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's summing up. He's saying this isn't the way that the Scripture works that we have faith not based on our, the results of the test that we give to God, but our faith in him, our faith in him, our faith that will not be shaken by our circumstances, our faith, our trust. There's a great, there's a great story if, uh, um, that perhaps you've heard before, but I think it's a great example of these things. That There's a um, uh, there's a guy named uh, Charles, I think, I believe it was Charles, of uh, Blondin, who was a, uh, who, who had set up a tightrope across Niagara Falls. This is, this is, this is true. I'm not making this up. He set up a tightrope and he would walk across and he did it. This is the mid 19th century. And he did it. He would walk back and forth over. And then he, he was gathering crowds and then the crowds kind of drifted away. So he started doing more amazing things on this tightrope. He would like carry one of those big cameras, you know, that had the tripods out there. He would take it, put the thing over his head and take a picture out in the middle of the, of the, uh, of Niagara Falls. He also at one point literally took a stove out with him, lit a fire in the stove, made an omelet on the stove, lowered the omelet down on a rope to the maid of the mist, you know, that ship that goes down in the, in the bottom of Niagara Falls, so the people down there could eat it, right? Because he's like, this is pretty amazing stuff. And so, so one day, it, he purportedly said to the crowd, you have seen me do all kinds of amazing things here on this tightrope. Do you believe that I can push this wheelbarrow across the tightrope? And they said, yes, we believe you can do that. And he said, then get in. See, this, this is the difference between belief and faith. Do you believe that God can do all these things? Yeah. Then get in. Do we trust him this much that we'll actually bend our understanding of time and sex and money and power and marriage and parenting and singleness and being a student and being all of these things we're going to wrap around the word of God. Do we believe that? Do we get in? Not just believe it from a distance but to really get in to the Word of God. That's faith rather than testing. So let's wrap this up this way. Uh, doubt is uncertainty. It's a question of trustworthiness. And, and just as Satan tempted Jesus to to, to doubt the word of God and to put God to the test. He does the same thing with you. And here's what I want to say. Friends, doubt is normal. Doubt is normal because of the forces outside working on you and your own sinful nature. And so when you start to feel doubt, don't panic and go, well, I guess I'm just done now. Like I'm not even a Christian anymore because I'm doubting. Doubting is wrestling with what God says. Unbelief is rejecting what God says. 
You can be, you can be a faithful Christian in doubt. In fact, if you don't, I don't think you're thinking hard enough about your faith. It, wrestling with the things of God makes us stronger in the things of God because we can even bring our very doubt to God. He's not threatened by that. He's, he's not thinking, oh no, you're bringing doubt. That's the only thing that can overcome me. He's not, he, he, he is not afraid of your doubt. And you don't have to walk away from him because you have it. But press in more deeply. Press into the community. Worship anyway. Read anyway. Pray anyway. Take your doubt to God. He can handle it. Receive the sacrament. Simply receive grace. Say the words of the liturgy that sometimes we just have to rely on the faith of others because we don't feel like it's in our own heart. And that's why we say the words together as the community. Trust. Press in deeply. And we wrap up this sermon series by saying it this way. Satan can tempt, but Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And friends, you are invited to be on the side of the victor. You you are invited to be on the side of the one who has forgiven our sins, who 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 has triumphed over temptation and has won a victory over death itself. And so all of the schemes of the evil one, all of his plotting, all of his tempting cannot stand in the face of the authority of Jesus Christ and the grace of Jesus Christ. So yes, be on guard, be aware, be proactive, press in. This is not, your faith in Christ is not something that should be be trivial or to be pursued lightly. There is significant cosmic and spiritual of that work intentionally and proactively And also knowing that our faith relies on the grace of Jesus Christ. Satan contempts, but Jesus wins. And so as we work through the last couple of weeks of Lent, root out those things where Satan has misdirected you, got you on a different path, subtly introduced doubt to you. Repent and return to the Lord who receives you so graciously and is longing for you to be with him. And let us have a deep hope, even in the midst of our struggles and our fears and our doubts. Let us have great hope in the victory of Jesus Christ. And we say to you, Satan, get behind us. It is Jesus whom we follow. It is the Lord in whom we have trust. Father, protect us, we pray, from the fiery darts of the evil one. Lead us into into paths of righteousness. Let us not be swayed by the the wisdom of the world, but by the wisdom of your word. Lord, let let us be infatuated with you. Turn our desires towards you, our intellect towards you, our bodies towards you. Lord, let us be, let us hunger and thirst for righteousness. And let us not be led astray by false truths that would be thrown at us. And we long for the day that you will return, Lord, to make all things new, to remove all doubt, to remove all sin, and when Satan will no longer be a threat. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.